Father, think about this time of the year, the season when we're approaching Christmas and celebrating the goodness and grace that you've extended to us through Jesus Christ and his incarnation. When we think about the humility that he exhibited to become a man and to struggle and suffer with this flesh. For he who is fully divine, that, that he would do that is honestly something mysterious to us. We can know the facts, but the heart of your love for us is, is expressed through that event, and we don't fully understand. But we're going to examine some of those truths this morning. But Lord, what it does for us is it reminds us of why we need to say no to your love forever. Lord, and it's not just a moment here gathered as believers and maybe some non-believers here, those who are struggling or not convinced about Christian faith yet. Lord, we, we know that it's not just about this moment. It's about time for eternity to come where we will worship you and glorify you for your goodness, for your uh, character, for your nature, for hundreds of qualities that we, that we begin to understand through your word as we live out our faith. Lord, this this is a, especially a, a time that we need to, I think, renew a focus on you in a, a particularly special way. So Lord, I, I pray that that song and our heart song would actually be about your glory. So Father, today as we get ready to prepare our hearts for hearing the word, to listen to your spirit as he takes the word and teaches us, that he would transform our hearts and our minds, that, that we would submit and surrender ourselves to you as uh, the right Lord, the gracious, kind Lord that you are, the, the good shepherd, that, that you would do a, a great work, and we would leave here transformed and bear great fruit in our lives. So Father, um, this morning also, I, I think about, and I want to make sure that we spend just a minute more in prayer about those who have experience tragedy over the, the course of the weekend with storms. Lord, we know that there are those who have lost family members. Um, Lord, we pray that, that you would comfort them. We're thankful that your spirit is the deep comforter. Lord, we pray that you guard their hearts and minds in Christ. Lord, for the, the Christians that are in those areas that have the opportunity to uh, stand in the gap this morning, especially as or probably trying to, to collect themselves, um, both physically as well as emotionally and spiritually. Lord, we pray that those churches would be empowered by your spirit to uh, represent you well, that they would be uh, ministers of your grace and mercy. Lord, how we can cooperate with that. Uh, we look forward to that, whether that's through sin relief for us being able to physically invest at some point in, in relief efforts. So, Father, this morning, uh, there's certain, uh, certainly a sobriety to our hearts and minds as we think about those that, that have been impacted. Uh, but, Lord, at the same time, let us also recognize that uh, we're called to focus in today uh, and to experience you anew as you speak to us. So, so we, again, surrender ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have children, and Maya, I'm going to confess, what, what age groups are going out today? 
fourth, age four through ten year olds. Okay. So if you have a child that is age four through ten, um, there is a class, children's church, for them. They are welcome to go. If uh, you don't want them to go, we totally understand. Um, our deep desire soon, uh, we're going to be having, I think, a vision retreat in January. Uh, we've promoted the dates and are looking to see how everyone uh, who's been invited to that, that's going to work for them. Hopefully it's going to be January 22nd. And we're going to be talking about some more specific things about ministry. One of the, the desires is for us to figure out what we need to do about a nursery. Um, we know we've got several young children in, in our church life. Uh, we are certainly glad that you're here with them. Know that they're not going to be a distraction in here. Um, if they get a little bit loud or fussy, um, I know, Bunny, you do a great job, and others do as well. I'm just trying to, to soothe them, and if it gets a little bit out of control, you'll just move around a little bit and, and do what's appropriate. So that's, that's the best solution we have right now, right? Um, so uh, just do what you need to do. Uh, this morning... Let's get into the Word. I'm, I'm excited about this message, and, and I'm going to confess to you, um, this is going to be some very rich theology. Um, and I, I, all week I've been praying about this as I've studied prep and those kind of things, and, and I feel like this is such an important message around Christmas time for us that, that it's, a, it's out of really simple text, but the, the text itself really exposes two great concepts to us. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, um, in Matthew chapter 1. And this will be a, a verse you're probably pretty familiar with if we think through the, the Christmas narratives. And um, we're, we're going to pick up a little bit of context just, just to make sure that we don't just isolate a text or just pull out one little text and, and go from there. But um, I think this, the implications are really serious for us today. And, and uh, hopefully this will help us with some rich things. So we'll pick it up in Matthew 1. We'll be reading verse 18 through, we'll read through 25. So uh, here we go. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, she cons as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're going to focus in on Matthew one twenty one. this idea where Matthew uh, records Joseph's uh, own personal record of, of the verse that, that says that the angel appeared to him and told him that, he was going to bear, that Mary was going to bear a son, and he was to call his name, the son's name, Jesus. For he will save his people from their sin. As I was uh, preparing, I, I started thinking about the, this concept of superlative. Um, when, when we think about superlative, the first thought that came to mind is when we have someone that graduates, right? That, I know there were some 
graduations that were happening uh, this last weekend. Um, I think, I, I know Brian, where our kids are and uh, have graduated, but Christian's fiance, she was uh, finishing her schoolwork this year. They don't have a, a winter ceremony, but I know some schools do have it where they walk. Um, and if you've been to, how many of you have not been to the graduation ceremony? Okay, good. Most everybody has. So this will make even more sense. It, it's always something to just achieve that that completion of the degree, to, to finish your high school graduation or college graduation or whatever level it is. But isn't it amazing when they start adding on the superlatives that someone has cum laude or someone has summa cum laude? Right? That there's this aspect and understanding that they work so much like a, to a different level and they achieve that, that superlative. Um, why does that have to do with us as believers or what, especially with Christ? Well, I think it's interesting. When we think about Christ and, and what he described that in Scripture, or described as in Scripture, what we discover is almost every description is some kind of superlative. So, like, what, for example, what? Well, they're shepherds, right? Shepherds were appeared in, in the, uh, they, they were out of the Bethlehem area. Uh, angels appeared to them. Uh, they were guarding their flocks. What is Jesus called? The good shepherd. And when you think about that term, it's that superlative, right? Um, there's also, I think this one is an amazing one, and I hope this really appeals to us uh, in terms of this idea of relationship. Um, that's something that, that is that's really like shaping my thoughts a whole lot right now. Um, I'm reading, trying to read a whole bunch on the knowability of God, um, that, that we're not just you know, distant people in that sense, but, but we actually get to interact with Him, that there's this relationship with Him that is precious. And when we think about, like, I, I'm sitting out hanging in the foyer with several guys this morning, and I'm like, I call every one of those guys my friend, except for Don, because he's from Alabama. Um, he's an Alabama football player. Um, he's not even here to defend himself, is he? Young. What's that? That's me? I mean, I'm a former Auburn student, you know, and I, I didn't graduate there. So, so we have a friendly rivalry. Katie's a Georgia fan. Yeah, so we're house divided, and then Don only instigates more in all this rivalry, and he loves to poke. So Leanne, you're wearing this ugly sweater. <laughs> she, she, we've already been picking on each other. We're good. Right, Leanne? You love me still? Most, most of the time? Yes, you check. Yeah, most of the time. Um, so y'all make sure to tell Don that was picking on me today, okay? Um, so, friendship. I'd love to call those guys my friends. There's, there's friendly banter that goes on, right? There's, there's certainly nothing at, at odds with all that stuff. We don't, you know, throw stones at each other when football teams win or lose and all that stuff. It's just fun. Um, but Jesus, Jesus is a friend that does what? Sticks closer than a brother. Wow. When, when I think about that, it, it, it reminds me of this relationship that I have with my sovereign God that is not this transcendent thing that, that I can't approach him, reach him, understand him, recognize him, but instead it's about this intimate relationship where he transcends the intimate to come and be in Jesus and 
incarnate flesh, right? To, to, to understand me differently than he did as a divine. I don't understand how that can even happen, okay? But it, it's, it's so we would be known by him and us known uh, uh, that we would know him as well. And it's because he is the superlative. There's none like him. And so this Christmas, I, I trust that as we're leaning into a couple of these deep truths about who Christ is and, and the, the glory of what happened in the Incarnation, it won't just be like the simple thoughts. And I'm not saying simple thoughts are wrong or, or, or bad or insufficient, because sometimes those can actually be the riches. But I hope it will drive us to deep meditation, to deep thinking, to, to a deeper relationship about who we are in relationship with Christ. And, and this is why I think this is so important because Jesus is, what we learn here, the Savior. He, he is the, the one who has come to save us from our sins. And when we think about this idea of, of who he is and what he has done, and it's, it's more about who he is than just the fact of what is done. And I'm not divorcing those things or separating them apart because they have to go together. But his person is the superlative. And I think that, that comes out in this text in Matthew and what the angel announces to Joseph. And I think part of the problem for us, and this is where we're going to start diving into the text. And let me tell you how we're going to work this this morning. I don't typically approach the text this way, but I'm actually going to try to unpack this in reverse today. I think it helps identify a little bit more about the superlative of who Jesus is. So, so we're going to look at this concept of sin first. So, so let's just look back at the, the text to make sure we, we understand how I'm working this backwards. So Matthew uh, 121, she will bear a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As I was thinking about this whole concept of for he will save his people from their sins, I, I just pulled out Greek text and started looking at the, the language there. And the word for is actually a Greek word in the text. And that's important. A lot of times there's additional things that we do in our translations to, to attempt to smooth out the reading of that. And that's a great thing. Okay, That's part of the work of translation. But often, um, this is why I like more literal translations, is because when those words are there, they emphasize the significance of why the Holy Spirit inspired, inspired those writers to include those words. And so the word for that article it is actually important, really important. And if you take notes in your Bible, I would encourage you to like circle that word or underline it and maybe write out to the, to the side this thought. Because that for, that, that little uh, Greek article, it actually emphasizes an intensified explanation. Does that make sense? Why? It's like when I read that and looked at that, I was like, don't lose sight of this, Matt. Don't, don't let this slip by. And, and it made me start thinking about what happens in the Christian church a lot today. And I, don't, I, I hope and pray this is not our church, to be very, very blunt and honest, because I don't think it's the heart of the elders to let this, this slip by. But I think that in the, the, the church as a whole, okay, in Christendom, that very little is made about sin. That, that it is underemphasized, and we treat it very flippantly. And that's a gross injustice to Scripture. It's a gross injustice to who the Lord is. It's a gross injustice to who Christ is and why He came. And honestly, it's a gross injustice to us 
And as church people who want to grow in our faith, because if we treat sin flippantly or lightly, then ultimately what we're doing is we're minimizing the superlatives of Christ. And that is dangerous. It's dangerous to understand Him and, and, and our sovereign Heavenly Father and the purpose of His plan for salvation. It's dangerous to, to us in how we live out our faith. Because if we minimize sin, then we don't repent easily. We, we or, or care about repenting. We don't care about dealing with our transformation in, in, in walking in righteousness. And, and it just becomes, our, our faith really just becomes like a little casual piece of our lives. That's not what Christ intended. I don't think that's the message that angel gave. And so I think this is an opportunity as to like dial in the lenses a little bit on this and, and understand. And so, wonderful Christmas message. I'm going to talk about sin this morning a whole bunch. Okay? So, because I think we need to understand why there is this intensified explanation that Jesus came for. Right? He, he, he came for this purpose. So, that purpose is one. Let's, let's look at this idea of, of sin. And I want to give you a couple of key thoughts. First of all, we need to remember that sin is at the root of our depravity. Okay? And when we say depravity, that, that can be such an ambiguous word also at some points because people don't want to think about that often. But I, I think it's an essential word. And, and so depravity doesn't mean that we're as wicked as we can be or sinful as we can be or as evil as we can be. But what it means is that sin has impacted every aspect of who we are and tainted that. And you've heard me give this illustration. I think it's a good illustration. I heard it when I was uh, I first came to Christ. I, I just, it stuck with me um, for, for years now, decades now. Um, but if I was to make an egg salad sandwich, I took a dozen eggs, okay, and I boiled those eggs. How many of y'all love egg salad? I love egg salad. Okay? So you can register, like, resonates with you right away. So if I took a dozen eggs and boiled those things, and, and then I started cracking them, and I started pouring them into the bowl and getting ready to mix them, and then I the last egg, that 12th egg, it was rotten. And I said, ah, oh, it's just mixed in with the rest. Nobody's going to taste it or notice it. It's not going to, um, you know, the smell is not going to be, I'm going to put enough mayonnaise and mustard and salt and pepper in the, the egg salad to you know, cover it up. And I went and served that to you and said, hey, there's just, by the way, there's a rotten egg in there. Don't worry about it. It's mass and everything. What would y'all do? I mean, I've already seen some of y'all's expressions this morning. So it's like I've ruined egg salad for everybody, right? Yeah. It's, no, I haven't. Um, what would y'all say? It's tainted, right? Because it's mixed in with everything. And it's not that the all 12 eggs were rotten, but, but it's that that sin, that ruin, that rotten, has ex it, uh, expanded through. It's been mixed in. It, it's tainted the entire thing. That's, that's the idea of depravity. That, that sin has so destroyed us that it's influenced every aspect of who we are. We need to explore that a little bit. So let me let me give you a, a couple of specifics how it leaves us, how sin and our depravity leaves us. Oh, and I, I can't make sure I, I say this. Because sin, in, in this sense, because of our depravity it, uh, encompasses every aspect of who we are, it leaves us in two positions. One with Christ, that it, it's, there's this rejection and hatred of Christ because of sin. You say, whoa, whoa, that's not right. If you're a believer, that's not where you are. 
You, you appreciate what Christ has done. But if you're not a believer, you're, you're, there's really deep in your heart a rejection and hatred for Jesus and what he's done. The other aspect of it, and this is, to me, as serious as that, there is this sense that sin in our depravity is ultimately a failure, a failure to give glory to God. And, and that is huge. Because what we sing when we gather and worship, especially around Christmas time, we're singing all these songs about glory, aren't we? That, that we want to glorify Christ, that we want to glorify God, that we want to be like the, the our, our express our, our love and, and thoughts of, and worship like the angels did. Glory to God in the highest. And we, we begin to say those things, and that becomes a, a, a consistent theme in our worship and our thoughts. But because of depravity, if we have not had Christ deal with our sin, we will not give the glory to God. And, and so that's where sin leaves us in that condition. But it also, I think, it impacts us in some other ways. It impacts us positionally. See, in, in John chapter 8, verse 34, listen to what Jesus says. He says, everyone who commits sin is what? A slave to sin. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? We, we, we are slaves to sin. That's what depravity produces, is this bondage. We're in a position of being jailed in our sin, away from, separated from God and his, and his holiness because we're an affront to him. So, so we're positionally in, in this awkward, lost state. Romans 10, I'm sorry, Romans 3 verses 10 and 22, it, it tells us that there's none righteous, no not one, and then it says further that we've all sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of God. So I can nutshell this thing with a great illustration with the eggs. But biblically, it's, it's there, isn't it? We see that scripturally. We see the condition that we're in and, and that we're slaves and that no one is exempt from that position. Furthermore, the news just gets even better because it's not just our position. Ephesians 2, 3. This is, and if you have your Bibles, I really want you to turn to this passage. Um, this, is, this is one of those passages that when I started really studying through the book of Ephesians, this has convinced me of a lot of deep theological truths and, and helped me become more grounded in what I understand the Lord to be doing by in, in salvation, first of all, because that's ultimately where this passage goes, but also what my abilities are. And we're going to look at that in, a, in just a moment. Ephesians 2, 3. Um, I know I'm jumping into the, the text a little bit. Actually, let's just read 1 through 2, 3. And, and so Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, or this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That, that's an important piece right there, too, in the mind. Okay, so hang in there. And we were by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So it's not just positionally that we're slaves to sin. It's that the core of who we are, our nature, everything about us 
is what? Sinful. And what that demanded was, that sin demanded was a response. A response from God. So when God sees that sin and sees that depravity and he sees that our nature is so corrupt, what does the text say there? That we are by nature what? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a great place to be in. That's sarcastic. Who wants to be an object of wrath? Here's what that word actually means. That word wrath has this context of uh, justifiable uh, abhorrence. Those are words we love to hear, right? I'm justifiably abhorred in the sight of God because of my sin. That he has every right to look at me and go, that is disgustingly gross. I want nothing to do with that. And then it also has this meaning of inclusion of anger and fury. So it, it's not just the withdrawal like, if, if I would have put the egg salad before you, and you smelled the rottenness to it, you might go, well, I'm justifiably abhorred, right? That's easy. And you push away from it and go, ah, don't want anything to do with that. But, but what if I had put that on a sandwich and hid that in the food and then you partake of that? How would you have responded to me in that, you think? I mean, I hope, if you're like me, you'd probably spit it out, what are you doing? What, what are you thinking? Okay, you did that to me. We, I, I got scripture for the day. You're trying to make me sick, right? And, and, and I would have, and everybody in here would probably go, what? You're justified in your anger and fury at her for trying to hop that, right? And, and that's the, the sense that our, our sin nature produces in God and the response that is act, uh, appropriate on his part to abhor sin and to be angry or furious over who we are. It's serious. You see why culturally we're in a dangerous place when we treat sin flippantly, when we don't think that it's serious, or we try to, uh, I love this book by Jerry Bridges, if you've ever read it, you'll get this, it's out, actually out of Psalms, um, that our sin can kind of be seen as respectable. That's just a respectable sin. We make those kind of excuses and say, that's not as bad as others. Folks, we're depraved. Our sin corrupts us. Every aspect of who we are. Did, did you catch what Ephesians said? It's even our minds. So, so this is where, I think this, this gets into a whole other thing, and I want to address this, um, because if we don't understand that our, our minds are also corrupt, I think what it lends into is this sense that we have more ability on our own than, than what the Word of God really teaches us. And that puts us in a compromised position. So we, we read in Ephesians 2 that, um, let's go back to that, just make sure we get the context. In verse 3, among whom we almost live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So the passions of our flesh, the, the desires of our body, the desires of our mind, they were what show and demonstrate this sinfulness. And they produce or reveal to us that we're by nature children of wrath. Look over at Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18. So Paul continues writing. He says, Now this I say in testifying the Lord... 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now he's not criticizing Gentiles that have come to Christ. He's just saying that the Gentiles, because they don't know Christ, because they are not aware of the gospel, that there's a futility in their thinking. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So, so he puts this penalty or pressure point upon the Gentiles, saying their minds are, are what? Futile. And their hearts are darkened. And it's no different for the Jew. It's the same for the Jew and the Gentile. He's just calling it how he sees it and how the Holy Spirit again has inspired him to understand that our minds wrestle with these things. That our hearts are darkened. That we can't escape the impact and the power and the potency of sin. Look at Titus 1.15. Keep going over to the right just a little bit. It'll be before Hebrews, after Timothy, which is after First and Second Thessalonians. Has everybody found it? First Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, or Philemon, however you want to say it. I guess if you're someone from the south or east Tennessee, Philemon. Um, thanks for laughing, baby. Um, Hebrews is after. So if you get Hebrews, you've gone too far. I think everybody's found it. Okay, Titus 1.15. Listen to what we, what we read here. That Paul writes to, to Titus. To, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. That is serious. I, uh, flashes in my mind when I was in seminary. Dr. Gray Allison, who's the president of the seminary, taught our personal evangelism class. And he would talk about when you encounter the lost, expect them to ask the lost. It's a, it's a simple principle. But boy, that helps me a lot of times. It, it especially helped me with my kids when they were young, before they came to Christ. I'm like, they're just lost. They're going to act lost. It's, it's my responsibility to help shape them with friends, with family members that are lost. They're going to act lost because they are lost. They're, they're, and what, what Paul writes here is they're, what? There's, there's no chance for their minds or their consciences to be pure because they're defiled. So, so what does that mean for us? Well, I want to clarify something. This is a rich, rich topic. And, and I want to begin by saying this. It is probably one of the richest topics that comes up in, in terms of salvation in our day and age. And I'm, I'm going to point this here according to, to this verse of all. I don't have time to unpack all of this today. So I would encourage you, if you have questions, engage in some more future dialogue with me or with an elder, uh, Michael or Stephen, uh, and, and let's make sure that we're wrestling through these things. Because there's an aspect to wrestling through some rich things in doctrine that it takes time to reason out our faith. Okay, And so I'm not saying this out of uh, arrogance or like a one-off shot to say, boom, this is how it is. There's also, I think, some amplitude for how these things can be interpreted. But I think there's also some constraints in how to interpret these things. And so you're probably going, oh my goodness, Matt doesn't ever talk about that kind of stuff. Um, or, or this way. 
I'm, I'm telling you that because it, 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 it's a, a constant thing that people are attention about. Okay? Now, what is it? Well, I think it's this. That people often think that we have this freedom of our will to choose God. To choose salvation. Folks, that is not how I can interpret these passages of Scripture. If I'm defiled in my thoughts, in my heart, in my body actions, and everything is painted about me, how do I have the ability to choose God? So what we get into are the really rich, deep topics that go back to there's a distinction between the free moral agency of Adam and Eve versus me being born in sin, depraved, and, and my will being bound in my sin. And that, that's a, a complex stuff. I want to give you some more thoughts that are uh, a couple of things that are not just mine, um, but they're from some other guys. So let me give you a little history of this. Okay? And I think this is where this stems um, predominantly. There were uh, two guys that came along just prior to Martin Luther um, that would have been so pre-Reformation. Um, one name you'll probably be really familiar with, uh, William Ockham, from the, the whole thing about Ockham's razor. You've heard of that. It's like this, this deal. That I don't want to get an explanation of that. But he was one who was teaching uh, so, and, and wrote several things right before uh, Martin Luther came on the scene. The other one was a guy named Gabriel Beal, B-I-E-L. And, and he was really the more influential one because uh, to Martin Luther because he was a contemporary with Luther and actually taught just right prior to him and, and influenced him. Both of those guys were Roman Catholics. What they were doing is they were going back and reading Augustine and Aquinas, and they were misunderstanding what Augustine had been teaching. Okay? So Beale, and, and, and so here's the, the real rub of what they were teaching. And I want you to hear this in contrast to what I've, I hope scripturally have shown about the importance of depravity. What they were expressing was this ability for man to do his best. And after doing his best, in some key moment, God would respond to that best that we had done, and he would infuse saving grace. Do you hear the difference in, in what they're teaching and what I think the Word of God teaches? That they're saying man has some ability to raise himself to some level, and, and then God confuses. That's where I think that idea of free will comes in. That, that our will has enough freedom to choose God at some point, and then him to respond to us. Folks, we don't have that ability. It, it is by God's grace, through faith, that we're saved. And that's a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why grace is so precious. Because in and of ourselves, we don't have that ability. So let me, let me give you a couple things. Um, Luther, he was reading through Romans and recognized that what they were saying, that, that, that they, we may have achieved his best, and then God would respond to that and, and infuse grace. That's his reaction, that we are justified by faith alone, by grace alone. That's the whole thing he's responding to. Now, what it deals with further is, uh, uh, this, I think this is a great statement by a contemporary guy who's actually passed away, but his name is Robert Raymond. He was a, a theologian at, um, I want to say, Covenant uh, Seminary, 
but I've got that wrong, forgive me. Um, he says this, because man is totally or pervasively corrupt, he is incapable of changing his character or of acting in a way that is distinct from his corruption. He is unable to discern, to love, or to choose the things that are pleasing to God. Why do we first love, or why do we love? Because God first loved us, right? I, I don't have in my ability anywhere, my mind, my heart, my emotions, anything apart from Christ, that ability to love the Lord. My sin is corrupted all those faculties, right? So, so it's by His grace and Him because He's first loved me. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I love this. He says, if the sinner can take the first step, he can take all the rest. If the sinner can, by nature, make himself willing to be saved, he has no need afterwards for the Holy Spirit. For the, Holy, uh, for the nature which gave him the first right thing can give him all of the right things under the end. See, he, he, Spurgeon gets it. He's like, if, if we have the ability to start, which would align with Beal and Occam, then we have the ability to keep going without the work of the Lord. That's impossible. So, the clear truth is this. We read it earlier, but I want to make sure that we, we consider this again. Ephesians 2, 1 says this. You were dead in trespasses and sin. See, our condition, apart from Christ, is dead in our sin. Why am I spending all this time focusing in on these nuances and this richness of this great doctrine? Uh, and I say great doctrine, it is. It's essential of depravity and sin because when the angel announced to Joseph that Jesus was coming, it was for that serious implication for us to be saved from our sins because Jesus would save his people from their sins. And if we miss sight of this, if we have the ability to do anything else and to contribute that, there's no need for Christ. And as we come into this Advent season, I would hope that as we're leaning into worship in just a couple of weeks, that we would know the power, the importance, the necessity of Christ's work and sacrifice when we had no ability in and of ourselves. So when we think about this, I think this idea, and, and emphasize this one more time, one more place. When we think about Ephesians 2, that we're dead in trespasses and sins, what does Romans 6 tell us about our sin? For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift is Jesus Christ, right? The gift of eternal life is Jesus through Jesus Christ the Lord. That's the power of the gospel. And so when we work this passage backwards, right? So let's go back to Matthew 1 and read this again, because I think this will help us a little bit more. This will take about, got about five more minutes, okay? Y'all hang in there. Matthew 1, 21. Let's look back at this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So we've looked at this idea of sin. Now, what is this idea of Jesus saving his people and the name Jesus itself. So, first of all, I, I don't want us to miss this. Jesus, the name, is essential. 
And it's not just essential for the purpose. It's essential for his character. Okay? Because we, we, can, we can look through the Old Testament and see people that were, in a sense, and in a sense, people that saved the Israelites. Who were some of them? Joshua? Right? Moses is, in a sense. So Joshua, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. Joshua maybe a little bit more than one sense than Moses because he takes out the leadership mantle and leads them into what? The promised land, right? What, what about um, Gideon? There, there's this sense where the, uh, the Israelites are being overtaken by four nations and Gideon uh, takes the, the few soldiers and then they, with the power of God's army, overcome the four nations. What about David? David leads the Israelites through so many things. What do y'all say, David? Right? What do you do that? You know? um, there's no food eating that. <laughs> we, we had dinner with him last night, so um, she does. We're picking up each other. Um, yeah, so, but what's the, the, the downside of every one of those uh, characters of the Old Testament? They were sinners, one. She did this like one. It didn't last, did it? It had to be like reinvested every time. Also, what kind of salvation was provided for them? Every time it was only physical. You get that? It was never spiritual. And, and, and so all the physical means, great, we had a season, wonderful. But the spiritual implications never found remedy. And so Jesus is a different Savior. Of the superlatives. He is the only one who saves from sin. He is, he is the one whose name, now listen to this, this is so great. The name itself emphasizes a spiritual uh, implication that has to do with a, a deliverance, but it provides something different. That's, that's what that word salvation also means is that it's the promise of something, not just the freedom and, and redemption from, but it's the promise for. So, so Moses, Joshua, Gideon, David, they provided some kind of freedom and a temporary for, but uh, our promise fulfillment, but it was never an eternal one. Jesus provides security, preservation, protection, an eternal home. The answer is Forever with him. That's the hope of our salvation. And then, I don't want to lose sight of this. There's a relational component with Jesus. Did, did you catch this? It's subtle in the passage. But, but for Jesus, he saves who? His people. And I don't know who these people are. I don't want to play sovereign God. I'm going to trust that the Lord is doing the work and that he is going to get it all right. And we know that Christ will not lose one. His atonement is, is certainly effectual. And that's another discussion for another day. If you have more questions, believe me, I love to engage in these, the dialogue about all this stuff. But I want you to hear this. I, I, I love this, that there's a link and a relational component that cannot be broken. Here's what Spurgeon says. He says, the link between one's soul and Christ is not one's goodness, one's badness. Not one's merit. 
one's misery. Not one's standing, but one's falling. Not one's riches, but one's indeed. He saves his people from their sins. What a Savior. What a mighty Savior. What a gracious Savior. That he would see me in my sin, my depravity, my weakness, my inability, the, the, the corruption of my mind, my thoughts, my conscience, the heart that is darkened. All of those things. He loved me. He loved me through Jesus Christ. That's the Savior that we need to worship. You remember what I said earlier about our hatred and rejection of Christ and our inability to glorify God? That's what sin produces. But through salvation, it's all transformed. We have the ability to rightly relate to Him. We are called His people. He is the friend that sticks closer than the brother. He, he is my brother forever. And I am His forever. Salvation is precious. And as we come to the celebration of the incarnation of Christ, there is no greater thought than we ought to consider. Folks, let us not be fronted about sin. Let us not miss the opportunity to glorify our, our Lord and Savior rightly. Let us not miss the opportunity to surrender and submit our lives to the one who frees us from slavery, that changes our nature, that calls us his own. I want to read uh, last passage to you out of Jude. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn here. Right, right before Revelation. As, I, as you turn there, I want to remind you, I'm looking at my notes, that this is an important passage. Um, just to, to catch you up, you, you can maybe write these down and read these later. Because there's a couple key passages. One, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Um, it, it's a profound passage about Christ being the one who suffers on our behalf. It's, it's, it's so important because... Um, Peter quotes that and writes the passage down in 1 Peter 2.24 and, and it, it emphasizes that our only way to righteousness comes by willingness uh, by the willingness of Jesus to, to be in our stead, take our position. Okay? And that's where we get this idea of him substituting himself in our place and him bearing God's wrath upon him. Okay? That, that he is born our sin. And I don't want to leave those thoughts out, but for time's sake, I'm not going to read all those texts. And then you come to Romans 5, where we read in verses 1 and following, I'll just read this in my notes. Because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? And, and then he goes on in verse 6 to say, For while we're still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, now here's the difference between what Paul says there and what Neil and Ockham would have said. That Paul says Christ died for the ungodly. They would have said Christ died for those and impacts those who have done their best and have earned some ability. It's a great distinction and dichotomy. And then in Romans 5, 9, 10, we learn, we've now been justified by his blood. 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Isn't that good? For while, for, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death, the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Did you hear that? The wrath of God is satisfied in Christ. We're reconciled to him, and that experience continues to eternity. The hope of the gospel. Now let's, let's listen to the, the doxology in Jude. What I want to just encourage you with as we read this is I think our church is not a liturgical church. You can tell probably the moment you walk into our building that, that that's not the case. But I think that there's times, and this is one of those things that the Lord is working on me on, um, liturgy has a great place. And so, so we wouldn't stand to read the doxology together. But I want us to, to meditate on this, and I would hope that maybe over the next couple of weeks you can go back and meditate on this, to think about the, the hope of salvation, the glory of God, and our, our opportunity to bring glory to God rightly. So let's listen to this, um, verses 24 and 25 of Jude. It's only one chapter. Okay, so verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever Amen Let's pray together Heavenly Father
Jesus is who he is, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again, and we confess him as Lord, that, that we will be saved. So Lord, I pray that that, that person here hearing the sound of my voice, needing counsel about that, they would find someone today and just receive that counsel and be confirmed about following Christ right now. Lord, above all those things, because this is when we deal with sin rightly, this is the beauty of what we gain in relationship with you. Lord, it is a sensitivity to you and it is a relationship with you and we find peace and freedom and new mercy and new grace that's, that's abounding in our lives where we get the opportunity to rightly glorify you. Lord, if at any time in the season of our lives, we want that to be amplified well. We want that to be in Christmas. So Lord, I, I trust that your spirit would take the next couple of seconds in the quiet to move in people's lives for them to respond to you rightly, for them not to listen to my voice, but to listen to your spirit, helping them to reflect upon the truth of your word so that they would walk in obedience with you. So Father, I'm in the quiet. Just let you and every one of your people here just do business together. Father, we stand and we want to sing and honor you in these last few minutes together in Jesus.